Good morning. It is always wonderful to be with you, church. It is just a, a real privilege, uh, counted a joy. Greetings on behalf of Cross Point Church. Uh, we, we love being um, sister churches with you and, and being in, in partnership with you. And greetings on behalf of my family. I brought my oldest daughter with me. Uh, my wife and, and other two kids uh, have other responsibilities today, but uh, it, is a, it is a real privilege to be together with you. Uh, before we jump in, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 3, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bible or flip to it in your app or um, whatever way you choose to do it. But uh, before we jump into the message, I just had this sense to, I want to just share this with you. Um, I had, had this sense of God's pleasure in this place and that God's doing a new thing here. You are a church that's been through some transition and, and various things that have happened. Uh, retirement of a lead pastor, bringing in a new lead pastor. And I believe the Lord is just pleased. And the, the phrase that the Lord just kept, I believe, bringing back to my heart was, this is a people of faith. Even just sitting there and listening to Adam speak with faith about uh, the initiative to be praying for uh, conversions and looking to the future, uh, I, I think that that's just a picture of how the Lord is at work here. You are a people of faith. And whatever has transpired in the, in the, in the past and, and all of the wonderful blessings and grace that you have behind you, God's got even more for you. And I'm so glad that uh, Adam and Em and the kids are here and, and are going to be uh, helping to lead that charge. But this is, a, this is a body together that is a body of faith. So, so exciting, so encouraging uh, to be here with you this morning. Uh, as I said, I'm in uh, Hosea chapter 3. Um, I, I love Antiques Roadshow. I am not ashamed to admit that. Um, it, is, it may be embarrassing, uh, may have been embarrassing 10 years ago, but now I just embrace it. I love it. Uh, if you've never seen Antiques Roadshow, people bring items and experts tell them of their auction value. Uh, some people think that they have a rare treasure, only to find out it's just a mass-produced trinket from Kmart. Others, on the other hand, are sentimentally attached to an item, but they're ignorant of its worth. So I saw an episode not too long ago where a guy brought a painting that he inherited from his grandparents. Now, his grandmother felt this painting was just tacky, just a hideous, ugly painting. But his grandfather loved it. So they sort of had this compromise. The grandmother and grandfather had this compromise. They would hang it behind a door to a room where this man, when he was a boy, where he would... He would sleep when he was a child visiting his grandparents. So it became this sort of sentimental attachment that reminded him of his grandparents. It had this emotional value to him. But he knew nothing of this painting's history. So when Antiques Roadshow came to town, he, he brought it to the experts and learned that it's actually a very important painting from an artist called Diego Rivera. Experts knew the painting existed, but they couldn't locate it. So this was a painting, we know it's in his catalog somewhere, we just don't know where this painting is. They couldn't locate it until this moment. And you can imagine the excitement in the Antiques Roadshow expert's voice as she says this statement as she's telling this man about the painting that the art world has been looking for. She says, you have something of a painting trifecta here. The painting itself is by a very important artist. It has a terrific history of being purchased in Mexico City in 1930, and it's a very beautiful and important painting, and trifectas pay pretty well. She valued the painting at up to $2.2 million. In your face, Grandma. 
what made this painting so valuable? Well, for the man, its value was intertwined with the memories that he had of it, right? For art aficionados, they valued its history, its condition, the importance in the artist, uh, the artistry world, and the artist who painted it himself, Diego Rivera. Now, if it was me, my value would be the $2.2 million. But do you ever think about that question, what makes something valuable? And what are you and I worth to God? It's not a small question. See, it's not a small question because we look at ourselves at times and we see our ordinariness and we wonder, am I just some mass-produced, run-of-the-mill person? We consider our sin and wonder if the canvas of our life is so stained that we've become worthless. How do you think God feels about you? Hosea 3 addresses the failure of God's people and it trumpets God's faithfulness. And it actually answers the question of our worth. Our value, our worth is found in God's relentless love. It's interesting, isn't it? Our value is found outside of us in God's relentless love. That's the title of this sermon, Relentless Love. God's pursuit of us is what establishes our value and reveals the immeasurable worth of God himself. So Hosea 3 teaches this. This is the main point. If you're a note taker and you like to take down the, the main point, uh, the, the big idea of the message, it's this. God pursues us with relentless love to redeem us and reveal the depth of his glory. I'll repeat that again because it's kind of a mouthful. God pursues us with relentless love to redeem us and reveal the depth of his glory. Do you want assurance of your worth? If you do, look through the window of your sin to the vista of God's grace and see his glory. And we're going to do that today in Hosea chapter 3. It's a short chapter, but let's read this together, together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household goods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord God, we do come to you asking for your blessing. That blessing, Lord God, would be that Jesus Christ would be the prime preacher and that your Holy Spirit would come and move such that our ears would be open, our hearts would be open, that we would receive this word, it would transform us, and we would follow you more gladly. Lord God, let us be a people who are fully submitted, fully in step with you. That can only happen as your spirit works. So we yield all control to you. We, we place ourselves in your hands and say, have your way. We are the clay, you are the potter. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, the book of Hosea contains a metaphorical story of God's love and pursuit of Israel. You heard that already in some of, the, of what I read um, from Hosea chapter 3. It's shown throughout the, um, the book in the lens of a husband, and his name is Hosea, and a wife, and her name is Gomer. So the problem in their marriage relationship is that Gomer is unfaithful. She's an adulteress. And in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, if we were to go back to chapter 1, which sets up the book, we read about how Yahweh directs Hosea to go and love her, even though she was unfaithful. Then here in chapter 3, we see the Lord making a second call to Hosea to do the same thing. In other words, by the time we get to our text in chapter 3, what we're reading, there's a context here. This is the second call to Gomer, which means that Gomer has continued to sink deep into her pattern of adultery. This isn't just a one-off instance. This is an ongoing situation where Hosea is continually pursuing Gomer. She left Hosea and is in the arms of another man. But God is up to something. He's showing his character to Israel. Just as Gomer fled from Hosea, so too Israel, God's treasured people, have fled from him. They've taken up with other gods in idolatry and spiritual adultery. So this idolatry, going after other gods, this is called spiritual adultery, particularly throughout this book. And they are rejecting the one true God who loves them and who has called them to himself. This is not an isolated instance. It's the repeated pattern of descent of the nation of Israel. Gomer continued to pursue adultery even after Hosea forgave her and brought her back. So too Israel um, repeatedly loved other gods and joined themselves to sin and denied Yahweh. Even when God had forgiven them, they continued to pursue sin. They turn away. And Almighty God continues to chase them. The imagery at the end of verse 1 of chapter 3, it's it's actually quite tragic when you think about it. Israel is so dull that they pursue other gods and raisin cakes. Now given a choice between relationship with God and a snack on a dry, crumbly raisin scone without clotted cream, mind you, every time Israel takes the raisin cake. This is not an optimistic view of the people of God. It's not rose-colored. It says to us, that's you. That is us. Every time, on our own, that is our pattern. We reject the valuable one and try to fill ourselves with vain delights. But Gomer's issue was not just a, a desire to be unfaithful. It's not that just that she desired unfaithfulness. The the issue penetrates deeper to her heart. She had a sinister heart posture. She wanted her own way. She wanted to be the queen of her own world. She was all about self-determination. When we drill down to what defiles us, it's the same reality for us. What defiles us is always rooted in a selfish heart, 
self-determination, wanting to be in control. We pursue self-satisfaction. We pursue self-direction. We pursue being in control of our own world. Our idols are expressions of a commitment to self. Not long ago, two of my children had a, a little scuffle. And one, I won't tell you which ones because one of the three is here and I, w- I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone. Um, but um, there was this little scuffle going on. And what I, I realized as I sort of heard them arguing and, and starting to divide from each other was that one wanted to be in control. The one, the one wanted to, to sort of own the situation. I want to set the rules. I want to set the agenda. I want control. And the other one wanted approval. They were using each other to get what they wanted. Their agitation with the other was not really because of their sibling, per se, but the frustration that their sibling was presenting to their sinful craving to self-direct. We know this to be true. The things that we don't get, that really agitates us. We think we deserve something. We want something that we don't get. That's, that's what James says. Why do you sin? Why are you, why are you even willing to murder? Because you don't get the things that your heart wants. So we should all be able to relate to this situation, even to Gomer's situation. A few more bites at the buffet, that's all I need. Just clicking on a, a lewd image or a tasty morsel of gossip or lying to escape trouble or venting our anger trying to fill ourselves with food, clothing, experiences. These are the the ways that we pursue the things of the earth to satisfy self. The book of Hosea is penned so that we would see that we are Gomer. We adulterate. We flee God's intimate embrace for, for things like raisin cakes and other idols. And there are consequences to this lifestyle. Now, let me give you a little bit of context to help see the point that I'm uh, about to make here. Being an adulteress, in, particularly in those days, was a dangerous game. It's, not, it's sort of like commonplace nowadays. If you watch TV, you think everybody's committing adultery. But in, in the ancient world, adultery was a serious, dangerous game. There was no court system in which you could act unfaithfully and still get half of the marital assets. An adulterous woman often just continued to descend deeper and deeper into adultery, and she would become estranged from her husband and therefore her mode of provision. The next thing that would happen often is that she would practice prostitution to make ends meet. And unless she was taken as a courtesan into a wealthy man's house, her status would just keep descending as she traded her body for provision. Eventually, she'd sell herself into slavery at the city's auction block. And this is what's going on with Gomer in this situation. There she is, standing naked and vulnerable for the whole city to see as she auctions herself off. I wonder if she thought in those moments, how foolish have I been? It started with a few moments of delight and and now she's standing under the disapproving glare of indignity with a whole city watching. And then Hosea comes to the auction site. As the proceedings go on, 
he makes a bid for his own wife who repeatedly rejected him. Turns out Jose gets the winning bid. 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. That is, in today's terms, about $50 at best. Can you imagine how she felt? Standing exposed before the crowd, landing a whopping $50. That's like 10 cups of coffee at Starbucks. That's what your life is worth. That's what the value, that's what your sin has earned you. A life worth 50 bucks. When we chase sin and make idols out of the things of life and sell our soul for the raisin cakes of this world, we're the ones who lose. We become worthless. See, this is the way the world works. It promises delight, but only can deliver desperation. And Gomer now knew this. But the weight of shame was so immense. Surely she had no hope of being anything but a worthless slave at this point. And if the story stopped there, Gomer would be in desperation. We, if the story stopped there, our story stopped there, we would be desperate in our sin. But it does not stop there. This story moves to redemption. Our story moves to redemption. Hosea takes Gomer to himself. He probably immediately covered her as he whispers to her, you shall dwell as mine. You know, the text there, it's not, it's not this self-righteous, commanding, authoritative, you shall dwell as mine, you bad child, you bad woman, you adulterous woman. It's not chiding. It's tender. And he says, you shall dwell as mine. Maybe Gomer thought, oh, great. He, Hosea's the one that won me. He's the one that bought me. Now he's going to say to me, now you're my slave. It, it would be no less than she deserved. But that's not what he means. He, he says, you shall dwell as mine. And look what he says to her next. You shall no longer belong to another, but you shall belong to me. And I will be committed to you. I mean, rightfully, she could be property. Treated with disdain, no better than a piece of cattle in Hosea's house. Yet Hosea's words are words of promise, of covenantal commitment. He's promising his devotion to her. In fact, we might even say the prostitute has become a princess. Instead of shame and dishonor, she has devotion and tender care from a husband. Now, verse 4 might be a diff bit difficult to understand at first blush. Having a king or a prince was a gift from God to lead God's people into righteousness. And Israel's kings, I mean, historically, Israel's kings, they just failed miserably and they're called to lead, lead well. So there was this sacrifice system that God had put in place for Israel. And that also had been mixed and defiled as Israel gave themselves to false worship around pagan altars and, and pillars. So there are these terms that are used in this text like the ephod. Now the ephod was a cloak that symbolized priestly ministry in Israel. And that too, priestly ministry, degenerated into something mystical and pagan 
And it was being used in Israel, mixed in Israel, to allow Baal worship to begin to infiltrate the ranks of God's people. So Israelites were actually having statues of false gods in their own homes, just like their pagan neighbors. So what verse 4 is saying is really a mirror of verse 3. My devotion to you requires your devotion to me. You cannot keep on in your patterns of unfaithfulness. The stripping away of these things in verse 4 is God saying to his beloved people, to whom he's covenantally committed, that I am relentless in my love for you. So therefore, I am beckoning you into intimacy and devotion with me. Deep fellowship means stripping away the temptations to idolatry and sin. Now, we love the relentless pursuit of God, don't we? I mean, just to hear that, we sing songs about how God pursued us and he elected us from eternity past. God has been moving towards us. We love those themes in scripture and it's right to love those themes. But where we struggle is that we're not so sure we want to give up our crumbly raisin scones. And yet we we can't have it both ways. Either we get the soaring heights of intimacy with Yahweh or we get the shackles of shame that worldly delights deliver. So it begs a question. It begs us to respond. It begs us to evaluate ourselves. In those areas where you or I am giving into self-direction, do you know that there's a, a loving, relentless pursuit of God calling you away from your idolatry into deeper fellowship with him? He's saying to you, for your own good, put away wickedness. Flee temptation. Separate yourself from enslavement and attach yourself to liberty in the nearness that he offers with him, his own self. A number of years ago, I had a friend who was struggling with lust on internet sites. And it was affecting, as it always will, his marriage um, he was uh, somewhat newly married, and he, he received the challenge of a few of his brothers to do some surgery, to do some serious work. So what did he do? He locked down his phone so he couldn't browse secretly. He gave his laptop to a friend to keep under lock and key, and he had at least weekly conversations, and he committed to make a call if he was feeling particularly tempful, tempted. And the Lord met this brother. He took it seriously. He viewed it as surgery. You know, you you take surgery seriously, right? You got a surgery, ah, whatever, you know, I'm just going to run by the amusement park uh, before or after my surgery. No, we take surgery seriously. Do we take defilement seriously and consider doing surgery, letting the Holy Spirit do surgery in, in our lives? Are we willing to extract idols so that we can enjoy deeper intimacy with God? Brothers and sisters, this is not a harsh word. This is a loving call from God. Idolatry brings shame and a sense of worthlessness to us. If you're feeling condemned right now, it's not, that's not the voice of God. If the Lord's convicting you of something, he's calling you, he's convicting you to call you into deeper intimacy, into more fellowship with him. God's call to be separated and holy unto him, in other words, is not a burden. It's a freeing gift and it's for our own good. But each one of us needs to ask the question, what what might I need to put away in my life? Maybe for you it's 
to stop drinking alcohol or to put physical distance between yourself and your boyfriend or girlfriend or stop taking in media that feeds darkness in your soul, including perhaps political media that just keeps dragging you down into an awareness of only the things of the earth without keeping your eyes on the things of heaven, as Adam was saying earlier. As God's Spirit reveals these things to you, consider what separation from sin might look like. In fact, why don't we just take a second and just consider, is there a way that the Holy Spirit is saying, move away, separate from sin in this area? Just take a few seconds to pause and consider that. As the Lord revealed perhaps a step to you, I want to encourage you. If there's something that the Lord revealed to you, share that with a brother or sister, perhaps in your care group or here in the life of the church, and get help to walk towards the blessing of intimacy. Moving towards the final verse in this, in this text, the final verse gives us a picture of God's goal for us. See, God's relentless pursuit moves us in a continual rhythm of receiving his loving pursuit over and over and turning away from defilements over and over. And there's a goal to all of this. The reason God continues to do this has an end in view. It's to see him more clearly and to see him eternally, that we would be with him eternally. So verse 5 says, God's people, when we experience his pursuit and respond to him with devotion— God's people can look forward to a particular end. We will seek after the Lord. In other words, God's relentless pursuit of us moves us to know him more. Now, we started by thinking about what makes something valuable. And here is where we see the answer. What makes us valuable, it's not us independent of God. Our value emerges from God's own nature. In fact, even in our creation, we've been cast into life. We've been created by the voice of God to be image bearers of God. We are of immense and irreversible value because we are crafted by God in his image. To be his holy people. A, a painting, its value will shift with the sentiments of art experts. But do you know our value is fixed in the incalculable value of God, who calls us his own. His covenantal commitment to us, his, his creation in his, his image of us, and his commitment, his covenantal commitment to us as his own people is what establishes us as being of infinite value to him. You know, as we saw in the previous verse, four verses, we are Gomer. We trash our value by prizing the idols of life. So if left to ourselves, we would almost, and I say almost, be able to take the value and dignity of our humanity down to nil. And all of us have done so. But God, God is a God of mercy and of relentless love. His glory and his grace etch out the unending boundaries of his supreme worth. Nothing shows his perfection so clearly as the wonder that he, the perfect one, pursues us, the unworthy, the unfaithful, scoundrels, adulterers, rage-filled people, selfish, pharisaical, legalistic, and derelict men and women. Nothing, 
Nothing shows his value like him pursuing us. And, and he presses after us to redeem us. How? Hosea 3 tells us it's through David, their king. David, David, what is, what is Hosea talking about? David's long since died. What could Hosea be speaking of? Brothers and sisters, the reason of, that Hosea uses the word David here, or uses the, the person of David, is because David is the pointer to the true son, the true king from David's line. Jesus, our Christ and Savior. God's relentless love of us, is, it's not a hand wave that dismisses sin. God's relentless love entered into our brokenness as Christ the king came. Even the stains of our sins cannot overcome the purposes of God's redemption. God, in his relentless pursuit, is so invested in rede redemption that he gave, willingly gave Jesus to die in order to shine his redeeming love. Jesus, David's son, sealed the reality of Yahweh's love by laying down his perfect, unstained life for the ones the world said were worthless. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Instead of us being on display, naked and vulnerable, and being seen as worthless for, as a spectacle, Jesus Christ came and was displayed and stripped and, and, and viewed as the worthless one in our place to buy us back. He went to the slave auctions block, and instead of just giving his life over, he gave his life over, and that price bought us back to be in covenantal relationship with God himself. See, Jesus' death takes the judgment that we deserve and pays the price to release us from enslavement. Excuse me. But unlike the mere $50 of grain and silver that Hosea paid for Gomer, God, in Jesus, paid an inestimable price for you and I. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says it well. He paid the, precious, the price of the precious blood of his own, sin, his own son in order to make us God's own. So in Jesus' saving work, brothers and sisters, we find the fullness of our value. And Jesus' saving work reveals the gloriousness of God's character. So we treasure his value more deeply. And that's where this chapter ends. Jesus' work draws us near in the fear of the Lord. That doesn't mean a cowering terror of God's judgment. Certainly not. Coming in the fear of the Lord means we come with sober, thorough respect for the holiness of who he is in his nature. Jesus' saving work does not leave us loving worldliness, but, but calls us into a deeper desire for more holiness in our lives. Jesus' saving work, the inestimable price that, that God paid in Christ, separates us from sin and brings us into deeper liberty and freedom. When we see the value of who he is, the beauty of his relentless redeeming love, we are gripped with his glory, and we dwell in his goodness. It's exactly as Chris led us in Psalm 23, fixing our eyes on him, and we are conformed and changed as we treasure him more and more. So as we close, where is your heart today? Are you laden with shame, feeling worthless due to your track record of sin, or maybe just one area, one stain in the background of your life? If so, look 
to Jesus. He relentlessly pursued you because God prizes his glorious redemption and desires to draw you in. You were not bought for some measly silver coins and barley. You were won at the cost of Christ's own life. Are you presently dwelling in ongoing sin or lingering in a situation of temptation? If so, fear the Lord. Set aside temptation and look to Jesus. He's purging defilement from your life so that you will enjoy more intimacy with him. Do you find yourself in suffering, in trial? Brother, sister, look to Jesus. Yes, we suffer for a little while. But we will appear before him in his ultimate and final goodness of the happiest existence in all of existence, heaven itself. If life's trials feel crushing now, recall that these trials are crafted to reveal the redemption and the relentless love of God who carries us through them all. So for all of us, let's not fix our eyes on the prize of life's raisin cakes. Look to the end. He has a goal to his relentless pursuit, and that is this, for us to be with him forever. You are loved. You are valued by the God of supreme value. Soon we will see him and glory in his eternal goodness. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you laid down your life the pearl of greatest price, the treasure, God's own son, the divine man walking among us, you of an inestimable worth laid down your life for the likes of us. And in that you have established just incredible redeeming grace upon us. And you have spoken over us words of love and tender care that say you will be mine and there is nothing that can separate you you will dwell with me forever therefore lord god we have value because of you and your commitment in your son jesus christ so i pray now that every heart by your holy spirit's ministry would be settled in the mercy and kindness of the savior once again today in jesus name we pray amen